Today it's a joy to welcome you to our midweek service and time of Bible study with Pastor Pelletier tonight. Hope you've had a good day. This is time just to take time out, if you will. Take a breather, a little time for blessing and refreshing. And uh, catch your breath in the middle of the week and get ready for what lies ahead in the next couple of days. It's good that we can celebrate a faithful God and His wonderful Word that never, never changes. So it's a joy to... You know, we as God's people, we need to understand that, that God is not a loser. God is a winner. Amen. And, and we need to take advantage of that. And, and, and we, just, we just need to move on ahead in life and ministry regardless of what's going on in the culture around us. It's wonderful. I, I'm glad I'm a Christian. I'm absolutely glad that I'm a Christian, that I know the Lord. Pastor Pelletier, what are you going to do tonight? Now, you're, you're still on this grace and truth. Absolutely. And you've asked me to read from John's Gospel, chapter 11. Yes, sir. Now, does God ever do great, impossible things when we don't expect them at all? Oh, yes. Yes, John chapter 11, perfect example of that for sure. Amen. Oh, my, my. <laughs> and isn't it good that God does not honor our unbelief? Right, right. <laughs> he seems to look past it, and he works in our hearts well. I'll read from John's Gospel, a wonderful, tremendous, victorious passage of Scripture. Uh, and uh, many of you are familiar with this. Uh, a very, It's a thrilling story. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was, Mary, it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, that's to the Lord Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this said the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if any man walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death. But they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who's called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been dead in the, or been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them 
concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Again, we're studying again from the, the book, The Thriving Church, by Dr. Dean Taylor. And we've been kind of stuck in chapters 9 and 10, and we're going to probably still be stuck there for a few more weeks. Uh, but I don't think it's a bad stick. I think there's some good material here for us. And uh, I'm expanding quite a bit on what Dr. Taylor has put into those books, because I into those chapters, because I really want us to develop this idea of growing in grace and truth. John chapter 1, verse 17 says, The law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were re realized through Jesus Christ. And as we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ, we will develop this, this spirit of grace and truth in our ministry to other people. Yes, we must always speak the truth, but we're supposed to be doing that in love, as Jesus did. Jesus always loved, even to the end. Judas Iscariot says he loved him to the end. And uh, if Jesus can do that, we need to be able to do that with those who are friends and those who are enemies. The Lord needs a go a godly people who are full of grace and truth and, and maturing in their Christian walk. In those two chapters, we've already looked at several examples of how Jesus modeled grace and truth for us and how uh, we can learn from what Jesus did and how we're supposed to be acting. And we have much to learn to be like the Lord Jesus. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 13, it says that we are to, to strive until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus was full in grace and truth, and that grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So we will become gracious Christians who are able to speak the truth and minister to people in our world uh, as we become more like the Lord Jesus. Now we've studied four of the nine incidences up to this point of how Jesus modeled this grace and truth for us. And in all of those situations, basically he was trying to really do some evangelism through grace and truth. Tonight we're going to be looking and taking a little bit of a turn about how we use grace and truth to minister sometimes even to believers during times of difficulties and trials. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him. That has to be told. But we need to tell people that in love. And then we need to demonstrate it as we minister to one another. So let's review who we've already looked at before and what, uh, what uh, Jesus modeled before in the grace and truth. Uh, to Nicodemus, a religious and moral man in John chapter 3. Nicodemus, this teacher of Israel, came to Jesus incognito at night. 
He was too famous. He didn't want to be around. He didn't want other people to know what he was doing. But he knew that his religion and his fame and all that he had in this world and in this life, though he was a good man and though he was, in many ways, we would look at him and say a righteous man, he, he was working his way to a relationship with God instead of just trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. He had not yet been born again, and Jesus told him, there's still a gap in your life. There's still something that you need. You must be born again. And he explained to Nicodemus what it was to be born again. He explained that just as Moses raised up the brass serpent in the wilderness so that those who had been bitten by poisonous snakes there in the days of Moses would look at that brass snake in faith and they were able to be saved from dying. Those who rejected the brass snake and would not look at it, then they died in, in their sins. They died because of the, the poisonous snakes that had bitten to them, bitten them. And now Jesus said in the same way Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was going to be lifted up and that all men would have to look to him for salvation. And if they trusted in him uh, in faith, they came to him in faith, uh, they can be saved. And I trust that almost everybody here who's been watching us from all over the place um, has accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. But if you're not, you need to know that that grace and that truth is available to you if you will put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can do that even tonight, uh, before you hit the sack tonight, before you go to bed. Now, Nicodemus, we believe, did accept Jesus Christ because of some of the things that he did later on in his life. And uh, we're grateful for his testimony. And then we go on to the religious immoral woman, the, the woman at the well in Samaria, who Jesus met. And he asked her for a drink, and then he offered her the living water that she would never thirst again spiritually. And as a result of that, she also was exposed to her sin. Jesus made no bones about that. She was an immoral woman. She'd been married several times and was now living in sin with a man. And Jesus exposed that to her. But he offered her this hope of eternal life if she would repent of her sins and trust in him. There's a fountain flowing free with living water. It is offered now to lost and dying men. Come and drink of full salvation. You will never, never thirst again. And not only did that woman come to know the Lord, she went into the town of Sychar there and told others, and many others came to Christ. In John chapter 4, verse 41 and 42, many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. So he used this illustration of living water. Come and drink, and you can be have your thirst quenched. And then in the next illustration, a model of how he used grace and truth, he spoke of, of uh, the bread of life. So not only does he meet our spiritual thirst, he meets our spiritual hunger. And then Jesus meets, meets with a crowd of people who've been following him around to watch his miracles, to see the things that he'd been doing. They were impressed by his, his deeds and his works and his teachings. But then along, then along the way, they're out in the wilderness, and they, they begin to get hungry, and there's no place to go to get the food. And if there was enough place to go to get the food, uh, there wasn't enough money to buy it. So uh, Jesus told the disciples to go and see what they could find, and they came up with this little boy's lunch. And from that little boy's lunch, uh, five loaves and two fishes, five pieces of flatbread and two fish, uh, the Mediterranean style of bread and all, uh, they, he, Jesus was able to miraculously feed those 5,000, maybe up to 10,000 people that were in that crowd that day. 
He fed them abundantly in grace, but then he spoke truth to them. I like that what Dean said, and we've mentioned this before, Jesus demonstrated one of the most wonderful characteristics of grace is abundance, and grace is by its very nature generous. We as Christians ought to be a generous people like the Lord Jesus Christ, doing everything we can to meet the needs of people. But we also need to make sure that we tell them the spiritual need that they have and point them to the bread of life, Jesus Christ, the one who can save them from their sins. Jesus told them in John chapter 6, verse 27 to 29, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. So Jesus offered water for the thirsty, he offered bread for the hungry, and he always meets the needs. He spoke truth, you need what I have, and I'm the only one who can provide it for you. Then in John chapter 8, we see that uh, some Pharisees come to Jesus in an attempt to discredit him. They tried to pit him between two different styles of law, two different national laws, the, the law of the Jews and the laws of the Romans, though the Romans were in charge and the Jews were subverted under it. Jesus was a Jew, and as Jews they were trying to keep the law as much as they were able to. And uh, they come along to try to trick Jesus, dragging along a poor woman who's all disheveled and embarrassed and, and, and just, uh, just really doesn't want to be there. And they drag her out in front of Jesus there at the temple where he's been teaching. And uh, they said, this woman's been caught in adultery in the very act, and you need to do something about it. John chapter 8, verse 3 says, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? And verse 6 says they were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Of course, you know the Pharisees and the, and the scribes have no real concern for the woman. They have no real concern that Jesus uh, uh, performs justice in the situation. If they did, they would have brought the man along as well. You can't commit adultery by yourself. And so they 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 did not bring the man. So, so we know that this was just a trap. And Jesus sidesteps the entire issue by simply kneeling over, stooping down, and writing in the sand. We have no idea what he wrote. It's the only thing we know of Jesus writing ever. Uh, but it was in the sand or in the dust there at the bottom, uh, on the floor of the temple there. And... Uh, and one by one, they were paying attention, and, and, and they kept badgering Jesus. What are you going to do about this? What are you going to do about this? And, and then Jesus finally stopped, and he stood up and looked at them. He says, Who among you, uh, he who is without, you, without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her, from John chapter 8 and verse 9. I like what Matthew Henry says here. Matthew Henry says, in this matter, Christ attended to the great work about which he came into the world. That was to bring sinners to repentance, not to destroy, but to save. He aimed to bring not only the accused to repentance, but by showing her mercy, but the prosecutors also, uh, by showing them their sins. They thought to ensnare him, and he sought to convince and convert them. And one by one, as they thought about who should cast that first stone, the elders uh, came under conviction, recognizing their sin, and they left. And then the younger ones, and until the last man left, and the woman was sitting there alone. And Jesus asked her about those who had accused her and where they had gone. And she says, no one's here. 
And uh, he says, I'm not going to condemn you either. But he said, now you go and sin no more. He called her to repentance of her sin. Uh, but he let her deal with that in her own timetable. Now this is the message of grace and truth that the church should publish to every person in the community. God promises forgiveness, but not so you can stay the way you are. When he forgives sins, it is to set you free so you can begin to live your life in a new way. Jesus wasn't soft on sin. He wanted all men to repent and to change. But he was gracious enough to let them do so on their own free will. He pointed them to their sin and left the conviction to the Holy Spirit working in their hearts. And uh, thank the Lord, we, we know that some who would, some did respond. We don't know what that woman did. We don't know what those Pharisees and, and scribes did. But we know that there were some who came to Christ. And now we're going to see, turn away from maybe the evangelism mode, we would call it, and talk now more about the ministry mode and, and how grace and truth is instituted in ministry to one another. Now, you all know the story. Uh, it's a historical record. I hate to use the word story because it sounds like something from a comic book. It's not a story. These are, these are real historical events that took place these events that are recorded in Scripture. You need to understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Even these historical records and these what we call stories, uh, that uh, narratives that are recorded in the Scripture for us. Now, most of us are familiar with the narrative about Lazarus and how he was raised from the dead and and how he came out of that tomb wrapped in grave clothes and all those people saw him and, and all, the, all the excitement that goes with that. And what a wonderful miracle Jesus performed that day. And uh, that's a very famous thing that I think even unsaved people, people who don't know much about the Bible at all, have heard about. And uh, have, uh, there you see even, even Halloween costumes about Lazarus coming out of a tomb wrapped up in, uh, in cloths. And so we're familiar with that, and, and, and we're familiar with, the, with the, uh, the prefix, I guess, to the story, to the, to the introduction to the story, where, where Jesus is told that Lazarus is sick, and we knew that Jesus loved him, and he, we knew that Jesus loved Mary and Martha, but he delayed in coming, and he had purpose in all of that. He knew that ultimately he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, to glorify himself and to prove that he was the Messiah for many who were wondering about who he was. And those are all very important. That's very much the centerpiece of what John chapter 11 is about. But I think there's another lesson for us to learn in this about how to minister in grace and truth to someone who is grieving. And we're going to look at how Jesus ministered here to this family that he loved as they grieved over the loss of Lazarus. When he first ministered to them, they had no idea that he was going to literally raise him from the dead right there four days after Lazarus had, had died and been buried. They, they, there's a lesson for us, and we, we need to see how we can minister to people. You know, the loss of a loved one uh, in death is one of the most difficult times in anyone's life, whether you're a believer or whether you're an unbeliever. And uh, it's one of those times when you really do have uh, a thought about eternity and, and what happens to us when we leave this body and step into uh, eternity. And it's a very, uh, very tender time and it's a very poignant time when we can talk about uh, spiritual things. 
At the same time, we often feel awkward. What do I say? What do I do? And I don't want to do the wrong thing. I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to hurt these people. I want to help them if I can. Some people just say, it scares me to death. I don't even want to go to funerals. I don't want to be around it. I don't want to be around. Death scares me, and I don't want to be around it. But there's a place and an opportunity for us to minister to people at this time, especially believers who have been trying to grow in grace and truth. And it's important that we take advantage of those opportunities that God gives to us to minister to people and in their time of grief. Well, how did Jesus... Uh, show grace to the grieving daughters, uh, uh, sisters, Mary and Martha. Their brother had just passed. Apparently they were unmarried. Uh, they may have lived together, the three of them, in their home, their family home. Maybe it's the home that they grew up in together as children, and now they were there in that home together. We don't know all the details there. But what did Jesus do to show grace to them? First of all, he went to where they were. In John chapter 11 and verse 17, it says, So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Jesus went to where they were. He didn't avoid the situation. He didn't try to hide from it. He went to where they were. And uh, that's an important thing. That's a small thing, it seems, in our minds sometimes. But during times of grief, sometimes the best thing that we can do is just simply go to be with the people, our friends, our loved ones who are hurting. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's a close friend. Just to show our support to them. Job's friends did that in Job chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. Some of the best things that they ever did was at the beginning of Job chapter 2 when Job had lost his family. He lost everybody but his wife. He lost his wealth. He was now losing his health. Uh, Satan was attacking him to try to get him to turn away from God. God gave Satan permission to do so. Uh, nobody understood that in the middle of the story, what was going on. And yet Job's friends did a good thing. In Job chapter 2, verse 11, when Job's three friends heard of all this adversity that had come upon him, they came each one from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, and they made an appointment together to come to sympathize with him and comfort him. And when they lifted up their eyes at a distance and did not recognize him, boy, Job must have really been grieving and must have been in bad shape. They raised their voices and wept. And each of them tore his robe and they threw dust over their heads towards the sky. Now, that's not what we would do today, but that was something they did in their day, their custom of the day. Then they sat down on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights with no one speaking a word to him. For they saw that his pain was very great. Sometimes the best thing that you can do is just show up and be a friend. And you may not have to say a word, but your presence is felt and your presence is needed. So Jesus went to where they were. That's how he showed grace to these grieving sisters. And then he showed grace by entering into their grief with them. I like what it says in John chapter 11, verse 32 to 33. Uh, pastor read down to verse 27, but let's go a little bit further into the chapter. When Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down at his feet and saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She's grieving. And when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. 
and said, where have you laid him? And goes on. And then it says in verse 35, the verse that every child ever memorizes in Sunday school, verse contests, Jesus wept. And now there's a lot of speculation about why Jesus wept that day. And there may have been other reasons. But one of the reasons I believe that he wept was because he saw that someone that he loved was grieving. Someone that he loved was hurting. And I believe that Jesus just entered into their grief with them. It was a very real and a very genuine thing to do. From the earliest days of human history, this is what people have done when someone is grieving. Friends and loved ones enter into that grief, and they weep with them, and they sorrow with people when they go through difficult times. Job spoke of grieving with those who grieved in his day. In Job chapter 30, verse 25, he said, Have I not wept for those or for, for the one whose life is hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? We ought to have compassion for people who are hurting. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul spoke of the need to enter into the emotional needs and burdens of others. In Romans chapter 12, verse 15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. And we want to do that. That's a fun thing. We do that at ball games. We do that at birthday parties. We do that at all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. By the way, it's Pastor's birthday on Friday. If you haven't sent him a card, you better get it in the mail. But uh, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice. And then we are also to weep with those who weep. We like the rejoicing part. We don't much care for the weeping part. But that is an important part of ministry. That is an important part of showing grace to people who are hurting. Christian empathy and compassion is only right and appropriate during times of great grief and pain. I hope that you have an empathetic heart. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, Remember the prisoners, as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. You know what it's like to feel pain. You know what it's like to hurt. If you've never lost anyone, one day you will. And you'll want others to be there to empathize and, be, and to sympathize with you. It's comforting to know that our Lord is that way. He wept with Mary and Martha. He, he was concerned. He entered into their grief with them. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says, We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And verse 15 says, He's not a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. He does. He cares. He shares grace with us in our times of difficulties. This was a time of momentary grief. Thankfully, soon, soon afterward, they were all rejoicing. And they went to that other part of Paul's verse where he talks about rejoicing with those who rejoice. But he went into the grief with them, and he wept with them. But he didn't just do that. He did more than that. If all we do is empathize, and all we do is cry, and all we do is weep, and, uh, and we sit silently too long, uh, we miss the second part of ministry to people who are grieving. How did Jesus share truth with the grieving? Number one, he comforted them with Bible promises. John chapter 11, verse 25, the pastor read that. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise again. Now Martha didn't understand Jesus when he said that, that he was going to do that within the next few moments. But she did understand that the Bible teaches of a resurrection of the dead. And she was comforted by what he had to say. It says in verse 24, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. 
She found comfort in God's word. She found comfort in knowing those things. Now, they were not familiar with the many New Testament promises that we have about the resurrection of believers. And I want us to review those things because you need to know these verses so that you can minister to people when you have opportunity to do so during times of grief. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20 to 22, it says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those that are asleep. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ will all be made alive. That's a wonderful promise. And then in verse 51 to 57 of those same, that same chapter, you often hear them at funerals, but maybe you need to know these verses before you have to go to a funeral. It says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. For when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will, put a, will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is a resurrection of the dead. There's a resurrection of those who trust Jesus Christ as Savior. First Thessalonians chapter 4, again, that great passage that speaks of the rapture, is a wonderful place where we can go for encouragement, knowing that the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to be with the Lord forever. What a wonderful promise we have in the scriptures about the resurrection of the dead. And we need to speak this truth to people who are grieving. Now, Mary and Martha were not aware of this, and sometimes I think maybe they didn't know about this resurrection because they didn't have those very famous New Testament verses. But this is an Old Testament thing that was taught even to the Jews way back before Jesus Christ came. In Job chapter 19, verse 25 to 27, Job said, As for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth, even after my skin is destroyed. Yet from my flesh I shall see God whom I myself shall behold, whom my eyes will see, and not another. The psalmist also gives insight regarding this resurrection. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, it says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the netherworld, the grave. King James says hell. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Speaking of resurrection, this particularly in the resurrection of the Messiah. But it is a resurrection that is going to happen to those who have passed. Uh, into death. Daniel prophesied of this in Daniel chapter 12 verse 2. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Everyone is going to stand before God at some point. Those who have accepted Christ are going to get to go to heaven. Those who do not will go to hell and they'll spend eternity in that place. I hope that you are going to the right place. The Pharisees also taught that there be a resurrection of the righteous and and they believed in this resurrection, and they spoke of it. And uh, Paul was used this later on, as uh, in, in chapter in, in chapter twenty three of Acts, to set in motion a, a, a debate between the Sadducees who didn't believe in a resurrection and the Pharisees who did. And and uh, the Pharisees defended Paul because he spoke of the resurrection. 
But Jesus himself, even before this time when, Mer- mm-hmm. uh, when, when Lazarus passed, had spoken of the resurrection. In John chapter 5, he spoke of it. In John chapter 6, he spoke of it. I've left those verses there for you in your notes. Because I want you to understand, this idea of the resurrection is in the scriptures. This idea of, of death not being the end is in the scriptures all throughout it. And we can bring comfort to those who know the Lord Jesus Christ to them uh, as we speak scripture to them. But Jesus makes it clear that only those who trust in him for salvation will partake of the good part of the resurrection of the dead. The others will face the judgment for their sins. He offered himself as the only hope for life after death. In John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's just, those verses are so comforting to me, as I know many of my friends and some of my family members have already gone on to heaven. It's almost as if they've gone to another place and they're just waiting and I'll get to see them. I don't really believe they died. I think their soul is living forever. Their bodies are in a grave, but their souls are living forever because they put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful hope that we have as believers. Now, Mary and Martha didn't have all of the information about the coming crucifixion and the three days in the tomb and and the and the resurrection. They didn't have all that information. But Mary and Martha had placed their faith in the Lord Jesus. I believe Lazarus had it well, has did as well. In John chapter 11 verse 27, Martha said to him, "Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes in to the world." Dean Taylor reminds us that the only hope people facing death have is the life that Jesus alone can give. So it's very important that we take care of this matter before death enters into the picture. Thank the Lord, we have the full gospel, and we can find hope by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. To be born again like Nicodemus, to get that living water, like the woman at the well, the bread of life, like those people there at the big crowd when Jesus fed them. And so we have hope as believers, and we can go to the scriptures and find hope. And it's important that we know those scriptures so that we can minister that grace and the truth to those who are hurting. But I I like Dean's approach also as he continued in this chapter. He gave some advice for ministering grace and truth to the sorrowing. We can know these truths in our head, but how do we practically uh, enact this as we actually minister to those who are hurting? Dean Taylor says the extremity of grief is an opportunity for the church to be the church, to do what the body of Christ does, which is to bring hope and healing to a situation like this. He gives this advice. When a fellow Christian dies, even the Christian family members who are left behind go through a process. Number one, the realization that their loved one is dead. That's a hard thing, whether it's a long-time illness that leads to death or, or it's a sudden thing. Whether it's COVID or whether it's a car accident, it's still shocking and it's still hard. And then there's the realization for a Christian that their loved one has gone to heaven. And we know that in our heads, but sometimes it takes a while for that to sink into our hearts. And we need to have scripture brought to our our mind and our memories so that that can sink in. So the Holy Spirit can take God's word and minister it to our hearts. And uh, it takes that, takes time. And so we need to minister in that way. 
And then we need to see that there's a process of not only knowing your loved one's dead and that they're in heaven, but then there's the hope that you will see them again. And we need to remind them of that as we go to the scriptures. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 and 26 talks about the church ministering during these times. You and I as believers have this responsibility. As the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. That's why we need to go to funerals. That's why we need to go to memorial services. That's why we need to show our support to those who are dying. They're part of our body. They're part of who we are. We're members one of another. Ways for every church member to minister to others in times of bereavement include your presence, uh, truth-based words of comfort, and helpful acts. Visiting the family at the funeral home, attending the memorial service, sending a comforting card with a personal note, and providing food for the family and their guests are not tra just traditions. They are tangible ways of showing grace and speaking truth to hurting people. I hope that you will find a way to minister to those who are hurting. Every family's experience with death is difficult. Nobody, nobody finds it easy. Nobody wants to go to a funeral. But there's one type of death that is especially hard, I think, for people to face. I've been through it myself when my father took his life when I was 10 years old. And one of the most difficult forms of sudden death for a family to go through is when their loved one takes his or her own life. And we need to find ways to minister. This is an especially awkward time for people who want to minister and don't really know what to do, what to say, uh, how to act. Uh, now, in my notes, I've made a typo here, and I didn't give you the point number two. But here, let me give you in just what I want to say in point number two in the notes. What is appropriate? How should we minister to those who left uh, after a suicide? Now, Dean gave a list of several things, and I've added to that from my own personal experience, things that helped, helped me as a pastor to minister to others, and things that I needed during times when I went through this. Uh, so I hope this is helpful to you. I'm going to read this through to you. It's very important that you get it. Let those who are the closest to the grieving family be the first to speak to their needs. They should be the ones who spend the most time with them as they grieve. Don't intrude by pushing yourself into the situation if you do not know them well. If you don't have these notes, send a note to uh, online at hamiltonsquare.org and we'll make sure that you get them. Or you can download them from our website. I believe they're available. But use, keep these handy. They can be helpful to you as you minister to people. Let the, those closest to the family be the first to speak to the needs. Let, and then when you're there, let the people who are grieving talk. Don't force them to talk unless they're ready to talk. Laugh and cry with them as they rehearse the life of the one who passed. Uh, talk about the difficulties. Let them talk about the good times. And then, and then hold them up through unceasing prayer. Pray for them. They need your prayers. They need your support. They need grace that they would never have until they need it at this particular time. Communicate your support through acts of kindness. Provide food. Provide funds. Provide transportation if it's needed for families to get to and from airports and to the funerals. It's important that we do this. Express words of comfort while understanding that sometimes they don't want to hear anything and they just need a little privacy. And Ask God to give you the discernment to know which is needed at the time. Don't stay silent just because you don't know what to say. If nothing else, memorize this. I know words aren't sufficient, but I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you. You ought to say that a hundred times until that comes natural to you. 
Because sometimes words are not sufficient, but they need to know how much you love them and that you are praying for them. Don't ask hurting people questions that have no answers. My dad died 40 years ago, and to this, almost 50 years ago, and to this day I still do not understand why he did what he did. My mother doesn't know, nobody I know knows, only my father knows and only God knows, and maybe one day I'll know when I get to heaven. It really doesn't matter, it's, it's not going to change the situation, so don't second guess situations. Don't pass judgment on the deceased. I know that there are people who want to say that that is the unpardonable sin and that those who commit suicide go to hell and they don't have any chance for salvation. But those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Savior have eternal life, whether or not they die that way at their own hand or at somebody other, some other way. Now don't try to explain why a person who took his or her own life did so. You don't know, neither does anyone else. And to add to that by trying to explain it only adds pain to the situation. Do not offer well-meaning platitudes that have no basis in Scripture. Oh, it'll be okay. You'll be fine. Just give it time. Maybe so, but let's make sure we're approaching it from Scripture. Speak truth from God's Word into the lives of grieve, not in a preachy tone, but in genuine concern and care for them. Now, when it's uncertain whether or not the deceased individual was a Christian, Go back to that statement. I know words are not sufficient, but I want you to know that I love you and I'm praying for you. Do not offer comfort the scripture doesn't give. Don't don't pray someone who you don't don't preach someone that you know never accepted Christ and all his life fought against the things of God into heaven. Uh, but do offer hope that maybe at that last moment before that person passed that they accepted Jesus Christ, or maybe they did long before you knew anything about them, and that they have eternal life because God keeps us, uh, not we, in the way we live our lives. Don't dwell or, spe or, or, or speak of the fact that that person may have gone to hell. That's not comforting. That's not gracious. That's not helpful. Uh, let God take care of that, and, uh, and you be an encouragement every way you can. And then when it's uncertain whether or not the one left behind is a Christian, Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 gives really good advice. It says there, conduct yourself with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech be always with grace as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Now, if you live that way all the time, and not just at a funeral, and not just when someone has died, you will have an opportunity to speak the gospel at that time, at the right time. Maybe not right at the moment of the death, but sometime down the road, if you show the love of Christ, you may earn the right to give that gospel to someone. Always be gracious. Show the love of Christ to them. Again, tell them, I know words aren't sufficient, but I want you to know I love you and I'm praying for you. And then do it. Don't just say it. If the opportunity lends itself, Share the gospel with love and grace and rejoice with those who accept Christ as Savior, but never give up on those who reject him at the moment. In conclusion, ministering to others during times of grief and sorrow may be the most important time for us to be like Jesus. Administering grace and truth in such times is a powerful tool in a Christian's toolbox. Live that way all the time so it becomes natural at a funeral. 
uh, natural at a time of grief, natural during the difficult times. Sooner or later, until we get to heaven, we are all going to be called upon to minister in this way. Or we will be in need of someone to minister to us in this way. Take these notes, study this out, look at this, ask God to show you how to be a minister to others during their time of grief. Thank the Lord Jesus set us an example of grace and truth. Amen. And if we follow that, we can be a blessing to those who are hurting. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 reminds us to attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We want to be like him. May the Lord give us the grace to do so, especially to those who are hurting. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we are grateful that you are a loving God, that you know our needs, you know our griefs, mm -hmm. you know our sorrows, that you enter into all of them, and that you genuinely do care for us. Thank you, Lord, that Jesus was willing to leave heaven's glory to come down to this earth, to take on human flesh, and then to go through the suffering of death himself to provide eternal life for us. Help us to be like him. Help us to be humble servants of you. Help us to use this method of grace and truth, this ministry of grace and truth in times of great need. And for those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, help them to see you as altogether lovely. Help them to see you as the one who provided salvation for them. And Lord, help them to come to you for salvation even tonight. We pray these things in Jesus' name.